Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. If you're vegan for the animals and you care to do more for animal rights, but you're not sure where to start, then this podcast is for you. Every week, let yourself fall in love with passionate animal rights leaders who will inspire you to find your voice, your own special contribution to the animal rights movement, however small or big it is. Today we are going to talk about justice for animals. To discuss this topic, I have with me William, who works as legal counsel for Animal Partisan. And oh, oh, be careful listeners, because Animal Partisan has been labeled as, and I quote, a major animal rights extremist group by the Animal Agriculture Alliance. If you visit Animal Partisan's website, and the link is in the description, this is their mission statement. Our mission is to end the suffering of animals in slaughterhouses, farms, and labs by discovering, exposing, and challenging unlawful conduct in all its forms. We're small but tenacious, I love that, from bringing criminal charges against slaughterhouses to uncovering hidden cruelty in labs to training the new generation of animal lawyers, we're becoming a thorn in the side for the animal agriculture and research industries. Wow, just reading that makes me feel motivated. You know, I want to stand up and make a difference. So William, I'm so happy to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan, and thanks for putting this podcast together. I think there's so much information on this topic out there, and I think any channels to get information to the public are, are valuable. So thank you for all your work. Of course. Amazing. So would you like to first introduce yourself, William? How did you find yourself working for Animal Partisan? Absolutely. Um, so my path to where I am today was a little circuitous. Um, I had actually started not even in law. I worked a corporate career. Um, I had graduated from school here in the United States in Virginia. Um, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I ended up working for a very large financial corporation as a process engineer. And I was designing how the business worked and managing large projects. And at some point in probably 2002, I ended up getting a couple of pit bull type dogs from the local city shelter. And I always say that for me was Pandora's box and it opened my eyes to sort of the plight those dogs experienced, discrimination, dog fighting. And then that led to me just volunteering for every animal welfare, animal rights volunteer group that I could locally. I think there was a point where I was volunteering or running 11 different local organizations while I was working full-time for the financial corporation. And at some point I kind of just said, look, I want to do this for a career. And I had kept seeing this intersection of law and animals and decided to go to law school late in life to pursue animal law. Um, I packed up, went to law school in Vermont, graduated, um, worked at a court for in New Jersey for a little bit, was fortunate to end up at a, at a great organization, Animal Outlook, um, was their legal counsel for three years, um, working on civil litigation, working with our undercover investigators, and then about a year ago, decided to branch out on my own and start Animal Partisan. And the driver for that was really just that there are so many legal theories and options available to try to help animals um, and compare that with the magnitude of suffering that's happening. It just felt for me like I needed to do whatever I could to maximize what I'm able to do in my time on this planet 
And for me, that was going off to start my own thing and sort of pursuing some of these legal theories. Sounds like um, effective altruism. Uh, do you follow that philosophy? I, I'm familiar, you know, um, definitely familiar with it. You know, it's not the way that um, I, I think of it, not to say it is either here nor there, but for me, it's just about, I have limited time left on this planet. I know there's suffering out there. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it through others. And it's just a simple equation of, you know, the time that I have, the hours during the day, you know, the days during the week, what can I do that's going to have a meaningful impact on that? Um, so that's, you know, whatever label anyone wants to put on it, that's just the way I think of it. I mean, as you you know this as well as I do, as we sit here now, animals are suffering, you know, probably, you know, miles from each of us, there are animals in factory farms, there are animals in labs, and um, there's just an urgency about the issue that I think we all need to do something about. So, William, we don't know each other, but you don't sound like an extremist. I, I don't feel like I'm in the presence of Che Guevara. So... What is the Animal Agriculture Alliance and why are they calling Animal Partisan an extremist group, um, a major extremist group? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, what's, it's definitely not just Animal Partisan. I mean, the Animal Agriculture Alliance, to my understanding, is a, um, an organization that supports animal agriculture producers, at least here in the United States. Um, and one of their big functions, at least that they advertise and they charge thousands of dollars from agricultural producers, is this sort of, quote unquote, monitoring of animal rights, quote unquote, animal rights activist groups. And so, you know, they're purporting to be sort of the watchdog for what the animal people are doing and what threats might exist to the industry. And so, um, you know, they've often produced this large, very complicated, almost un. I wouldn't say almost unreadable, it is completely unreadable diagram that um, alleges to show connections between the different animal groups. And, um, you know, Animal Parson is one of probably 40 groups on there. Um, to some extent, I think it's a, a badge of honor for these groups to say that, you know, the animal agriculture industry has taken notice of the work that's being done. Um, but there are plenty of other groups that, you know, everyone is aware of, your PETAs and Humane Society of the United States and Animal Equalities and all of the other groups doing wonderful, wonderful work. And so um, I think the word extremist is, is easy to use and throw about um, if trying to alleviate, reduce and end exploitation and suffering is extreme. I just question what sort of world we live in. Um, I think it's one of those terms that, you know, people know if you throw about and you brand somebody with the term extremist, some people won't even read past that and they'll just think, extremist means this person's ideology is nonsense. I shouldn't listen to that. I should discount them. And I'm sure that that's part, or I would suspect that's part of the strategy of the Animal Agriculture Alliance is to brand groups in many cases who are, or in most cases doing very, very reasonable things that the majority of the public would agree with if they knew about. Um, so I, you know, I would take that term with a grain of salt. And if people want to have a look at that um, unreadable diagram, they can visit uh, the Instagram account of Animal Partisan. You have published the uh, the diagram, and it's quite fascinating to to look at it. Um, let's get to the core of the topic. Can you draw for me a portrait of the legal situation of animals? What do I mean by that? Well. 
without getting into details, what is exactly the legal status of animals? Are animals considered sentient by the law? Are animals protected against cruelty and abuse by the law? Can animals have rights? So this is a, just a bundle of questions here. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's definitely not an easy answer to that question, as you might expect. I mean, there's a lot tied up in that. And I can speak to the American system of law. I can't really speak beyond that. But in the United States, animals are, are really considered property. I mean, we have Supreme Court cases going back decades and decades about dogs on train tracks and others where it's explicit that animals are considered property and that the state may regulate sort of the ownership control of animals in general. Um, so animals are, are not human beings. I mean, it is plainly evident from reading any statute or law um, that in the law in the United States, animals are not considered on par with human beings. They are considered property, something less than human beings. When it comes to the question of rights, um, it's a complicated question. You know, I would there's there's a lot of groups doing wonderful work in that. I would first give a plug to like the Non-Human Rights Project, which is um, you know one of the preeminent groups in the United States working to obtain legal rights for animals. Um, but animals do have some protections. It gets a little squishy when you talk about what's a right, what's a protection. Like, is the ability to be free from cruelty a right, or is that just something else? And so. I'm not sure I have the answer to that, but what, here's what I will say. Um, in the law, animals do have certain protections written in the law. Um, I'll add two caveats to that. One, it's not a lot. And for some animals, like animals used in um, agriculture or research, it is, in fact, very little, almost non-existent. And two, I would caution any listeners that the fact that something is written in the law does not mean that it happens in practice. I think we get complacent in a lot of regards and people think that, oh, there's a law written, everything's going to stop, this will be wonderful. The enforcement of laws is a whole separate situation. So I would caveat when I say there are things written in the law, that doesn't mean that these always happen in practice. Um, but regarding what is in the law, all 50 states in the United States have anti-cruelty provisions that prevent certain things like beating, abusing, overdriving, overloading, tormenting, torturing, these types of things. Um, so there's a whole host of written protections. In most of these states, those written protections exempt certain conduct. So standard agricultural practices, common farming operations, or bona fide animal research are all excluded from those things. And so you have this scenario to your question, some animals have written protections that allow them or purportedly should allow them to be free from cruelty. Um, is that a right or not? I don't know. It's not the kind of right that you would think of where I'm the right to be free and I can go pursue my livelihood and I can go wherever I want and I can socialize. Those are the more substantive rights. And I think that's what people generally talk about when they say rights. And so uh, to summarize all of that, um, animals are considered in the law in the United States less than humans. They're considered property. Um, they do have some written protections. Those protections generally are poorly enforced, and they do not include um, largely um, certain common situations in agriculture research funding or those types of things. But animals don't have rights of autonomy, association, and those types of things. So the net net is it's, it's a pretty lowly position for animals in the law which creates lots of opportunity for folks practicing animal law. Mm. And something I find truly 
mad about our laws is that there is discrimination between species of um, animals, and that reflects our cultural discrimination. So, for instance, there is a a set of rules for uh, dogs and cats, uh, and they're considered, you know, pets. Um, They're more, you know, perceived as being sentient, but then there's another set of uh, laws for um, farm animals, cows, pigs, chickens, and and such. Um, how do you explain that? How did that, um, you know, weird cognitive dissonance uh, made its appearance? Yeah, it's you're absolutely right. I mean, there definitely are distinctions drawn in the law between types of animals and. The distinctions are arbitrary. I mean, anyone who has spent time with um, any type of farmed animal, for example, would would know. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to, um, you know, have on on the property where I live, we have sheep and goats and chickens, and I've spent decades with dogs. And I can tell you that, um, take the goats, for example, the goats are every bit as cognitively aware and playful and affectionate, and the sheep and the chickens as well. And the, the chickens, the complexity of their sounds and their social interactions. I mean, these are things that people don't realize. And so you start with this premise of it is an artificial dichotomy between these types of animals. But to your question, yes, it absolutely exists. I mean, we say on one hand, um, the law will say companion animal or domestic animal, and it will define animals such as dogs and cats and maybe horses and gerbils and those types of animals. And on the other hand, we have these exemptions that will say, if you are an animal um, being used in a medical research experiment, or if you are being used in agriculture, you're different. You're not that type of animal. You're this type of animal. And I think your question um, gets to a couple things. You know, one is just um, it's really quote unquote social utility. It's how people view these animals. I mean, people have lived with domesticated dogs for many, many years, and they form bonds, and they um, generally socially think of dogs in one category. This is almost part of the family. These are animals that live near the household. And then, you know, commercially, we have used and exploited other animals for other purposes. And so it gets to what is the benefit to society in the eyes of society, right? It's like, well, these animals can help us, quote, unquote, make sure these products are safe, or these animals can be food for the dinner plate. Therefore, they have less value. We should care less about them. Mm. And that's how the laws are written. And so in large part, it reflects how society views these animals. And I think it's largely directed to the perceived utility of these animals. It has nothing to do with the fact that these animals are one and the same. Like they think, they feel pain, they suffer just like we do. They're no different. Um, it unfortunately, as with many things, you know, boils down to what society deems is useful for humanity. Um, and that's the sad state of reality we kind of live in. It's even sadder for the animals that are stuck in the system. Thank you for this explanation. You know, it clarifies things for me because I was thinking in terms of species, but yeah, it's better to think about it in terms of function because you could have a dog in a lab and then a dog as a pet. They have different functions and so they have different uh, legal standards um, applied to them. Yeah, thank you for that. So in preparation... um, for this interview, I was thinking about a conversation I, I had with Dr. Jens Fold, who is uh, the director of Fauna Sanctuary, uh, which is the biggest primate sanctuary in Canada. And that was actually episode one of the podcast. And 
she was explaining to me that the reason why we don't recognize chimps, and there are many good reasons to recognize them as uh, people um, in terms of uh, in uh, legal terms, because you know they are our closest evolutionary relative. They have faces. Uh, they, I mean, the resemblance with chimp, you know, be- between humans and chimp is truly astounding. Um, is because the fact that we don't recognize them as people um, in terms of the law is because that would open the door to laws protecting monkeys. And uh, there there would be this uh, snowball effect. And um, then at the end, we might be uh, threatening um, uh, the farm industry. Um, So do you agree with that? Uh, hypothesis from Dr. Jensfold. Do you think that this is the obstacle that stops us from um, giving um, legal protection, legal rights to animals, or do you think there is there are other reasons explaining why we um, we are in 2023 and we haven't gotten to that place of um, that? good place of, you know, recognizing the sentence of animals, recognizing them as more than uh, property. Yeah, yeah, I was um, excited to see Dr. Jensfold on your show. Just as a side note, when I was in law school, we had her come and speak in one of our webinars, or not a webinar, a symposium, and and she was great. It was very informative for the students there. to your question, is that is is that do I agree with that hypothesis? Yeah, yes, I do. There there might be a lot more woven up into that, but at the highest level, um, I think there are a lot of people fearful of you know if we start granting rights for animals, where does that slippery slope, as people will call it, lead us? You know, does that lead us to a place where and and this can spawn a hundred ridiculous arguments of are we going to give the dog the right to vote and can the cow drive the car and all sorts of other um, absurd things like that. And so, you know, I, I think it's it's twofold and they're kind of one and the same. And, you know, the argument will often be it's a slippery slope. You know, we suddenly will have rights. And how do we accommodate rights for animals when we have all the people in the world? And how does that system work together? But I think the other part of that that stems from that concern um, or alleged concern is that it goes back to the commercial utility that I talked about. So if we start granting animals rights, then presumably we wouldn't slaughter them and shackle them up and keep them in cages and um, separate them from their their calves and those types of things. And so then the question becomes, well, what do we do? What do people eat? I think the obvious answer is eat other stuff that doesn't involve animals. But um, I do agree with that premise. Um, I think that's a lot of what the resistance is, is just this is the way society is. It's the way society has been created for decades and generations. And, um, you know, the population is continuing to grow. I don't know if we're over 9 billion now, but it is not slowing down. And so such a massive population, you know, has a need for commerce and products and people are so interwoven with like the way things are and how animals fit in that system and are afraid that if we dramatically change that, what happens to the system? Like, where do people get their commerce? Where do they get their money from? Um, I, you know, I, I think that's the concern. I think you need to start with the more base fundamental of, does that matter? Is that enough to trump the rights of any animal? I mean, so if you start with the animals are in such a place that like their rights can be suppressed if we have commercial concerns, I don't think that's a good premise to start your argument. I think you start the argument with, 
if you have an animal that is sentient, that feels suffering, that has relationships and has every bit of capacity that humans do, why start with the, any sort of prioritization? Why not start with the question of like, what can we do to not do these things to this animal, just like we would not do these things to a human being? And then you start solving problems from there. So I think I think it's it's premised on a faulty foundation. I think you need to start with the foundation of like, let's not even entertain all this other stuff that we can deprioritize them. Let's start with the premise that we just shouldn't be doing it and now figure out how to get away from it um, versus like the alternative. Mm, the idea of a dog voting is ridiculous, but it's also so funny and cute. But that begs the question, uh, where do you, where do we want to go with this? Um, what is, you know, the ideal um, world in which um, animal welfare um, has fulfilled all its goals? What does it look like, you know, legally? Um, because, you know, I'm thinking, would that mean a future in which eating animal products um, is prohibited, is illegal. Um, so I don't know if you ever thought about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you, like I said, have to start with the premise of um, that future society looks like a place where we are not exploiting and using animals, just like we wouldn't do that to a human being. And so then you have to kind of build around it. And so if that's the case, then certainly we would not be eating animals, we would not be consuming them or raising them in massive warehouses and those types of things. And so um, that would all need to go away. It would need to be replaced by something else. Unfortunately, there are wonderful groups that are working on plant-based alternatives and those types of things to fill that void. And so um, I think you can safely assume that the utopian world would not look like um, animals being exploited. And so um, you know, the law sort of operates to some extent or the society to some extent operates on the law. So you would need laws to implement that. You would need laws that say, um, you know, these are the products that can and can't be um, created. You know, you cannot slaughter an animal for food. That is, um, I don't want anybody to be illusioned that we are anywhere remotely close to that, honestly, because I think that sort of tempers some of the urgency that's needed. This to me is like 100 years, 200 years in the future, um, but we need to act now to get to that place. And so, you know, I don't know what that looks like. You know, for me, it's a matter of just like moving the needle forward day by day, but it's a system where the laws reflect that we should not be using and exploiting animals. So there are not loopholes that say, you can slaughter a cow if X, Y, and Z happens, or for these types of products, you can test on this animal. Those are great steps along the way, but at some point we just have to say enough is enough. We're not going to do it. And then our society and our system of laws needs to reflect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you said, the current situation is far from that utopia uh, image that we have. And actually your organization was born with the premise that urgent action needs uh, to be taken uh, for the benefit of animals. And that sense of emergency translates into your actions. Animal partisan is six months old, yet you have accomplished so much and you are very bold. Uh, you are even suing the FBI of health institutions. And we will get to this later. Uh, so why are we in a state of emergency? What is uh, the emergency about? 
Yeah, I, th I think the answer to that question is easy if you look at the suffering. I think a lot of people, um, this is a, a bit of a peeve of mine, a lot of people turn away from the suffering um, and and that's okay. And I understand that people need to protect themselves. But if, if you look at the suffering and you recognize that it is happening here and now and there and there and there and there and times a million, times a billion, it is happening everywhere, every day. I mean, somewhere as we sit here, there is a sheep having her throat slit and there are chickens being, you know, pried half alive out of battery cages. It's happening everywhere. And those are not random isolated incidents. And so um, the urgency comes from that situation. Like society exists, society goes on. You know, it is early morning here for us, but everywhere around the world, the world is operating. People are waking up, they're having their breakfast. People are going about business and producing products that involve animals and slaughtering animals. And so the machine continues to turn. Um, society gets bigger and bigger. As I mentioned, you know, the population continues to grow. Um, and, you know, I think we need to stare it in the face and we need to say, this is a dire situation. These animals are suffering. This isn't just a job. This isn't just like a pastime or something fun that we do or to make ourselves feel good. Like, we need to get into the system and stop the system and stop the suffering and stop the slaughter. And so for me, that's where the urgency comes from. It just comes from recognizing the, the volume of the world today, the number of people, the number of business processes that exploit animals and just stop and grasp that and think about it for a minute. It's far beyond our own individual worlds. And then look at the suffering in its face, look at the animals, watch the videos, you know, expose yourself to the suffering, and then pull all that together in your head and say, this little scene that I saw here is playing itself out millions and millions of times a day. Um, I think that's where the urgency comes from. And I think it's it behooves each and every one of us who know about these issues and care about them to act and to act swiftly and to do whatever is in our capacity, whether that's signing a petition, donating, grassroots activism, protest, uh, doing legal actions, policy changes, uh, legislation, whatever it might be, everyone has a role. And I think it's it's critical that everyone jumps in. Well said. And let's examine those actions that uh, you have taken, the cases, the legal cases you have pursued and you are pursuing uh, right now. And let's start by the animal Agriculture, can you walk us through some of the cases you have fought uh, against the animal uh, agriculture industry? Sure. Um, so this is, um, Animal Parson focuses on two areas, animal agriculture and research. We are um, mostly focused on animal agriculture. You know, the vast majority of our work has been in this area, and that is largely because that's where the highest amount of suffering is. I mean, the number of animals impacted in the system is far exceeds other areas. And that's not at all to say that other areas like wildlife law or animals in captivity are not important. It's just you have to pick and choose where you're going to allocate your time. And so we have, um, like you said, only been around for a bit. You know, Animal Partisans started late last year. Um, as far as actions, you mentioned our most recent action, which is a lawsuit against the FBI, which in the United States is the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or, you know, one of the top law enforcement agencies. Um, this is in partnership with the Vermont Lawn Graduate School Farmed Animal Advocacy Clinic, um, which is a new clinic at Vermont Law School. Um, so excited to partner with them, my alma mater. They have great things going on there, um, plus the Sorensen Law Firm, which specializes in these types of cases. This case is specifically about the Freedom of Information Act, which is a 
United States law that allows people access to certain records to get a look at the happenings of the government. Um, so Animal Parson had requested records from the FBI related to the FBI's participation in various animal agriculture industry conferences. Um, these are conferences put on by the agriculture industry to talk about the business, talk about enhancements, you know, ways to make more money, ways to exchange knowledge. And we wanted to know what was the FBI doing at these conferences? What is the relationship between this federal law enforcement agency and the animal agriculture industry? Are they talking about how to um, criminalize animal rights activism, how to better target animal rights activists? And we wanted to know that information and so the FBI denied those requests, and we believe those denials were improper. And so we've, we've since sued over them. Um, we believe that they are obligated under federal law to give us those records and shed some light on what their role is with the agriculture industry. So we have filed a lawsuit on that. Um, we have a number of cases that um, I would say kind of classify as private criminal complaints. In the United States, most criminal complaints are brought by prosecutors or law enforcement officials um, I will say that it is very, very, very hard to get a prosecutor or law enforcement official to bring a criminal complaint as it relates to cruelty to animals and agriculture. It would be easier if it were a dog or a cat, kind of back to our earlier conversation, Ryan. But when you go to them and say, this pig was abused or this chicken was abused, it is incredibly hard to get those prosecutions. And so Animal Partisan has taken to um, some of these private complaints that allow a private citizen to use different procedures to circumvent some of that unwillingness. And we have criminal complaints filed against a pork company um, for abusing a pig at slaughter, a um, Wisconsin meat slaughterhouse for breaking the tail of a steer at slaughter, against the Pennsylvania turkey company for abusing turkeys, um, being rounded up for um, slaughter. That one is in partnership with Animal Equality based on a great PETA investigation. Um, so we're using a lot of those to sort of apply these state cruelty laws to animals and agriculture and try to circumvent some of this resistance that is really unfounded. So I'm happy to go on more, but I would say those are some of the kind of primary cases and the stuff going on right now. Yes. Um, before that, I want to go back to the FBI case. Is it even legal for the FBI to accept an invitation from the agriculture industry to one of their conference? I, I feel like this should be, um, uh, an, you know, not a partisan, um, a nonpartisan institution. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's anything illegal about it. I think what you're highlighting, though, demonstrates sort of the the state of society, the private animal agriculture industry gets so much support from the government, both state and federal. And so the government is geared towards supporting these industries. I mean, the, the act of animal product consumption is so deeply woven into our society that it is taken a part of the government. So if you look at places like the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, um, you know, there are huge partnerships going on between the USDA, state agriculture agencies, and private industry actors. We are funneling millions and billions of dollars in subsidies to the agriculture industry. And so it's not 
we don't live in a situation, unfortunately, where the government should be a nonpartisan entity that should not be collaborating. Everywhere you look, the government is collaborating with the animal agriculture industry, and in some cases, suppressing the dissent of others who are not favorable of animal agriculture. So it's really not a surprise that the FBI is um, engaged with that industry. You can go back through, you know, there's plenty of cases and actions over the last two, three decades where the FBI has targeted animal rights activists. They've gone to people's homes. They, you know, pulled pigs out of sanctuaries that, you know, were allegedly stolen from factory farms by Direct Action Everywhere and other groups like that. And so this is not a new thing. Uh, you would think it should be nonpartisan, but unfortunately it's not. Like we live in a world where government is in bed with the agriculture industry, and that's part of the uphill climb that we have to fight. I feel like there are more urgent matters than you know, going after pigs in sanctuaries uh, for, for the FBI. Um, do we know if politicians are being lobbied and supported financially by uh, the agriculture industry? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are the ties between um, the political world and the agriculture industry are, are tremendous. I mean, you can look at some of the pieces of legislation that get proposed and the the roots of those where they come from and even you know people getting on the floor of the house and talking about i was approached by xyz farmer in my community and that's where this came from i mean we've had um i would say the current one is you know there's a federal what's called the eats act which is a response to proposition 12 and other laws that were prohibiting confinement of animals in cruel conditions you know that is coming from agriculture interests there are what's called ag-gag laws in the United mm -hmm. States, which are intended to prevent activists from going into a farm and video recording or audio recording. Those are coming from agriculture interest. And so absolutely, like there are tight connections between the animal agriculture industry and politicians. And that is often manifested in laws and bills and, you know, attempts to do things or attempts to influence the USDA. So um, yes, that is, that is definitely the case. So when I hear uh, vegans talk about uh, the agricultural lobby, the animal industry lobby um, being this powerful, uh, big, bad institution, organization. They write about that. This is not just, um, um, you know, what's the word, you know, conspiracy theory. No, not, not at all. I mean, I, I, um, I would be surprised that anyone would say that. I mean, the agriculture industry is huge. It, I mean, think of Think of the amount of meat and animal products that are sold in this country. I mean, you can go to any grocery store and walk down the meat aisles and walk down, you know, any aisle, the dairy aisle, and like, it's right there in your face. And there are new products every day and they fly off the shelves. And every one of those products is X number of dollars that is going somewhere. And the amount of dollars that are woven into that industry are massive. And these industries have trade organizations that, you know, they sit on top and say, we're the national pork board. We want to represent all of America's pork producers or with their, um, you know, the egg board or whatever the case might be. And they they pool resources to some extent. They say, look, we have farmers all across the country. We want to have an organization that represents all their interests. You know, they are in many cases funded by the member farmers. They're funded by the government. The government has things called checkoff programs where they're channeling money to these associations to promote pork and do certain things. And so, no, it, it is absolutely the case that these associations and these industries, they wield tremendous power. You know, they wield political power. 
they wield financial power. Um, that's just the reality of the world we live in. I think I think denying that puts you at a disadvantage. I think mm -hmm. you have to accept it and say, these are the cards that are dealt. This is the, the mountain that we're up against. And then look at it and figure out how you can pick it apart. What are the laws that um, create this checkoff program? What can this association do? How are they allowed to spend their money? What can they say and not say? And that's where you start to get your power and you start to see, okay, this is the way it is, but I'm going to look at every one of those laws and I'm going to look at their requirements and I'm going to figure out what can they do, what can they not do, and where can I find something that they're doing that they should not do and bring that to attention, file a lawsuit, file litigation, expose it. Um, that's where your power comes from by facing sort of the issues that are out there. It's the same as what I mentioned with the suffering. You just have to look it in the face and you have to empower yourself and say, this is what I'm dealing with. Now, where can I go and what can I do to stop it? I can forgive the consumers for supporting this industry, consuming animal products. You can blame it on culture. You can blame it on cognitive dissonance and, and such. But the executives, you know, the the people running those industries, that I don't understand. Um, do you know if they are aware of the suffering they are causing? And, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think you can not be aware. I mean, if you are an uh, executive for a company that slaughters animals for a business, you even if you are so far removed that you're not a part of the business every day, there is some point where you've seen the suffering, you've seen or you've heard the screams of the pigs as they come in on the trucks or, um, you know, you've watched a, a cow that's been stunned improperly stagger and fall down. Like, there's no excuse for not knowing. I mean, that's the business. And I, I think we have to acknowledge that the people that run these companies know that they're suffering. I think you, you could probably get a lot of cognitive dissonance where these people think that animals are lesser and they don't have the capacity to suffer. And, you know, whatever I've just heard, the screams from the pigs, that's not as bad as the screams of a child or some human being. And I think a lot of people have convinced themselves that these animals are more like widgets or commodities and that, you know, they don't have the capacity to feel and suffer like we do. And that's probably what helps people get by. I think other people, you know, probably know and they acknowledge the suffering, but they just don't care because that's the business that they're in. They want to produce money. You know, they might label it as they want to feed America and be patriotic or whatever the case might be. Um, but I, I don't think there's any of them that don't recognize that there's suffering happening. Some of them may obscure it behind, you know, oh, it's not as bad as I think it is. But, you know, there's money involved and this is a livelihood for people and it gets back to the equation of, you know, money and the eyes of many weighs more than the suffering of a living conscious being. Um, that's, again, kind of the unfortunate reality of the world we live in. So let's get back to those uh, legal cases. What are some of the victories uh, you've had against this industry on, on the sure, court? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, like you said, we've only been around for a short while. Um, I will say, you know, even though in that short time, um, we already have, you know, multiple cases scheduled for, for trial. And so I, I can't say too much on one of them, but um, on our pork case, we have trial scheduled later this fall um, where an actual corporation has been charged with animal cruelty. And that doesn't happen in many cases, you know, the cases where cruelty is charged, it might be an individual person is charged, but a corporate entity can be charged with cruelty for conduct that happens beneath like the purview of that corporation. 
And so we have a trial scheduled. And I think the fact that we we have a trial scheduled, we had a judge review our complaint and realize that there's probably enough here to go forward and argue whether or not cruelty happened. That's significant. We actually have two of those. One of those I can't really get into, but there are two trials scheduled for corporations charged with animal cruelty for cruelty to animals and agriculture. And that is huge. That just doesn't happen. You know, in decades and decades, there have probably only been a handful of corporations charged, much, much less convicted. Um, so I'd say that's that's been a victory. Um, you know, we've had a lot of wonderful partnerships in our short time. You know, I mentioned Vermont Law School. We're partnering with Animal Equality on things. We've got a lot of other great partnerships building. Um, we've got a lot of uh, litigation ideas in development, cases that will be filed in the next two, three, four, five, six months that will be going out. And then one of the other things I would say has been um, a significant achievement is that we spend a lot of time trying to develop the field of animal law to help law students interested in this field grow, to help attorneys who may be practicing in other fields get experience. And so I think since we've been founded, you know, we've helped about 17 law students and eight attorneys get experience in this field. They've worked on projects for us. They provided invaluable support to animal partisan. At the same time, many of them have gotten coaching, mentorship, support, exposure to how to practice in this field. And that is just going to grow the movement. You know, the more people out there that know and care about these issues and can deal with them legally, um, the better. So, you know, I would say the trials we have scheduled, we did get a conviction for animal cruelty for an individual that um, kicked a lamb in the face during slaughter. That was early on. So that conviction has happened. We've gotten some media coverage of our cases um, in local media where these slaughterhouses exist. That is helpful, you know, even beyond the criminal justice system for people who read these papers and these news sources to just see what is happening in their community. That, that in many cases is more profound than anything else. So those would be some of the, the important things I would highlight. And you said how you decided to focus on agriculture, but also uh, the research industry. Um, what about the research industry? Um, what is happening right now? And what are you pursuing in terms of legal cases? Yeah, um, absolutely. So research is one of those areas that um, to me and, and others, I think is, is overlooked. Um, there was a recent study that came out that speculated on the number of animals in research of you know being over 100 million. And so it's not an insubstantial amount of animals you know, granted, when you look at animals in agriculture, we're talking eight or nine billion chickens every year. So the numbers are smaller, but it's not an insubstantial amount of animals. And they're suffering in many cases in different ways. I mean, they are suffering, um, you know, they're certainly kept in confinement, um, small spaces. I was just watching a video before this podcast of um, some sheep uh, at a lactation experiment in upstate New York that were um, confined to probably, you know, four foot by six foot little metal kennels in a concrete room. And I can compare that of the sheep that we live with who are roaming the pastures all day, foraging in the grass. And so they're suffering in similar ways like that, where they're being um, prohibited from expressing normal behaviors. They're being subjected to experiments. You know, they are being um, drugged, strapped into machines, you know, um, bred and kept in captivity and then killed to have their brains dissected, their blood drawn. And so they're suffering in similar ways. They're suffering in different ways in many cases and not a small number of animals. Um, animal partisan, this is a, a smaller focus area for us, but a lot of our early work here has been uh, public records work to try to gain transparency into what is happening. 
to try to find information about what are these studies, what animals are being used. Um, we've been on the search for videos of these experiments to see, um, you know, undercover investigations videos from factory farms are very powerful. I think you could find just as much power in videos from animals and research. And so we've got our eyes on a number of those videos to try to show people what's ha happening to animals behind the scenes. And so public records work has been some of that. We did file a lawsuit early against a university. That case has since ended um, for various reasons, um, but we're still focused on public records work, getting those records, potentially litigating some issues where records have been denied, just like the FBI did. I would say the other area that's of interest for us is um, back to the state cruelty laws. And so we talked about how hard it is to apply cruelty laws to animals in agriculture, the same applies to animals and research, but we are developing some case ideas to try to argue in various states that conduct committed to animals and research was cruelty and should be punished criminally. And so um, I can't get into too much, but I would say we've probably got two scenarios where we are not far off from filing private criminal complaints related to animal research to try to set some precedent because you're in a laboratory because you have a lab coat does not mean that certain things that you might do to an animal are not cruelty. Um, and we want to use the legal system to demonstrate that. And so we've got some cases lined up to try to um, explore that a little bit further. What do you say to people who uh, claim that, okay, the farm industry is one thing, but research, that's something else entirely. I mean, we're developing drugs against cancer. We need to uh, do, do those tests on uh, animals. Um, do you think they're right? Is it like um, justified suffering? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's much difference, to be honest with you. I think you have to start with the base question I asked earlier, which is, would, should we be doing this or should we just accept at face value that you know, we should not do this to another being that's conscious and can suffer. And so I don't I don't think you get into the justification like this is food and this is a drug. I think many people would say food is more important. You have a lot of poverty and starvation in this world. And some would say food is more important than um, drug testing or pain medication or things like that. So I think you can argue the relative importance of either one. But I think you come back to the same conclusion and say, regardless of which one you choose, are either of them worth exposing an unwilling, conscious, sentient, suffering being to these certain things? And then you have to stack that up with the alternatives. It's the same in the food space where you have plant-based alternatives and those types of things. There are alternatives to um, animal research, and I'm not going to claim to be the expert, and there are plenty of groups doing good work in the space, but it's not like a situation where we have no alternatives and it's just like, all or nothing. I would argue that even if it were all or nothing, we still shouldn't be doing it. Um, but it's kind of the same situation. Shouldn't be doing it to begin with. And there are alternatives. Um, and people need to be looking for ways to, to move out of that space. And I think there are some that are doing that. But um, there's just far too much research happening. And it's it's there's money woven into that as well. If you explore the grants and if you explore the funding, there are people who are making their careers doing research that is funded by the government that has given them money to do a research experiment that has been done before and has been done before. And so people are making their livelihood over this. And so I don't think in short, it's that much of a different question. I think you start with the, should we be doing this to begin with? And then you look at the alternatives. And I think you have to acknowledge that probably not something we should do. We should be moving away from it. 
yeah, let me just mention that it's not always the noble image that is sold to us. You know, like you said, there is economic interest behind it. You know, let's start with cosmetics. You know, I think you don't need to test your cosmetics on animals. Let's at least for a minimum, you know, agree on, on that. Um, so you walked us through, uh, some of your, uh, current and future cases. Um, I want to know what can we do to support your mission, to support what you're doing and, um, yeah, to, to, to have more victories against this, uh, industry, to make it more, uh, accountable for, uh, for its, uh, horrendous behavior and exploitation toward animals. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one, you know, support animal partisan, but just support the cause in general. There are so many good groups that are doing this. And I think the first thing I would say is just commit to doing something, whatever that is. Um, you know, I love support for animal partisan. I can talk about that in a minute, but just commit to doing something like recognize that this is a problem. And we each have 24 hours in the day. And many of those hours are consumed by scrolling through social media, watching memes or videos or things like that that are not meaningful or not impactful. And we each have the capacity to do something, right? And that could be anything. It literally, get on your computer, search for a petition, go walk dogs at the shelter, you know, whatever the case might be, call your congressperson, um, do whatever you want to do. So the first thing I would say is do something. Like we are not in a situation where we can just say, eh, other people have it, other people have got it covered. Like the individual people that step up and take action is what's needed. Like we need masses of people that are going to do that. Um, and, you know, I should give a plug, like we often forget about the grassroots activists, the people out doing protests or disruptions or things like that. If that's your thing, look for groups in your area. I mean, those groups are sort of strengthened by more people out in the streets doing things. So I would start with the premise of do something, whatever that is, and give your time and give your passion. And then second is, as far as Animal Partisan, I mean, we're a, a brand new organization. We would love any support that we can get. Um, we're very small. You know, the intent is to be lean and tenacious, like you mentioned earlier. Um, you can find Animal Partisan on Instagram. You can like the Instagram page. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. Um, any kind of support just through liking the page. Um, donations are obviously welcome as well. Um, you can go on animalpartisan.org and there's a support tab and you can sign up for an email list, you can donate, um, you can spread the word. Um, I, I work with so many other wonderful groups and I, I can't help but plug them as well. I mean, there are plenty of other groups doing um, just as good work and so support them as well. Um, so I think my message would be do, do something, uh, take your time, use it for something good. Um, if it's just, I don't have much time, then support the groups that do have the time and do have the passion. Go on social media, like them, follow them, comment, subscribe, um, you know, fund, support, whatever you can do to support these groups would be very invaluable. So, and we would appreciate it. And it feels amazing to be an early supporter of an initiative of an organization of anything, you know, it feels exciting. You're, um, you're the first wave of, uh, and you're looking at this organization and all its potential. I think it's, there's something really exciting about it but people will find uh links to your uh organization uh website but also to the donation page uh in the description below yeah. fantastic yeah and i think you're right i mean it is 
it is an exciting, I hesitate to use the word exciting just because I would rather not be doing this work, but we have to do it because the animals are suffering. But um, I think it, it speaks to the opportunities to do something. So it's not like, oh, you just look at this one legal theory and that's all you can do. No, it's every day. You can look at information, search for records, find out what the businesses are doing and explore all of these new legal theories and strategies. And so um, you know, there's kind of a sea of opportunity out there, and that part is exciting. It's like, where are the levers that we can pull to reduce suffering and animal exploitation, challenge these industries for what we're doing? And so there most certainly is excitement in that. It's kind of what keeps me going every day. Um, and I think, you know, what whatever we do is meaningful, like whatever we can do to sort of impede the tide of what's being done to animals is meaningful. So um, I appreciate the support. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's this, you know about it, this uh, misanthropic sentiment in the vegan community and looking at other people making a difference and working hard for uh, the cause of animal welfare just um, makes me have a, a new appreciation for humanity. Uh, I think, oh, we're not all bad, you know, it's not there are some very good people among us and you're part of them and yeah so did you have uh, anything more to add before uh, we end this conversation we don't i mean i you've covered a lot of ground and i sincerely appreciate it and i it, like i said at the start i would give a plug to you ryan i think what you're doing is a great example of what i just talked about like you are doing something you said at some point, this is an issue. I have the capacity to do this. You're clearly doing a wonderful job. Like, to take a page, I mean, for listeners and viewers, take a page from Ryan's playbook and just do something, whatever whatever it is, whatever skills that you have, um, put them to use. And so I, I don't have anything more. I think my last plug would be, it's just, it's uh, there's so much suffering in this world. I mean, don't for a minute be appeased and think that the new plant-based burger came out, everything's good. No, it's if you look for it, it's out there. We've got limited time on this planet. I think we just need to put our heads down and churn away. Whatever we can do to help, do it. You'll feel more fulfilled. You'll reduce suffering. Um, I think it, it, it takes all of us, and I appreciate the opportunity, and I appreciate all the great questions. Of course, of course. Thank you so much, William, for your work and for having accepted my invitation and uh, for having taken the time to... Uh, answer my questions thank you everyone for listening more people deserve to know about animal partisan and their effective work so make sure to share this episode with family and friends next week we are continuing the veteran vegan series with chris chris is a teacher by profession and he became vegan for health reasons in my conversation with Chris, we talk a lot about food and strategies to advocate for veganism. And Chris is very good at that. I love his approach. Subscribe now and don't miss out on this episode. Finally, you can always reach me on Instagram at Vegan Report Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Take care and see you next Tuesday.